Okay, so uh, welcome everybody, and glad you could make it on a rainy evening. Uh, I'm Eric Kaufman, uh, professor of politics here at Birkbeck, and this event is co-sponsored by the Department of Politics and also the Population, Environment, and Resources group of the Birkbeck Institute for Social Research, and we're very pleased to be able to welcome uh, Eric Tillman, who uh, is um, Associate Professor at DePaul University in Chicago and uh, has been doing some incredibly interesting research on the political psychology of authoritarianism and populism. Uh, he's also done work on EU attitudes, um, and voting behavior more generally, uh, and largely focusing on Western Europe. Uh, I don't have a whole lot more to say, um, so I, what we're going to do is have... Um, uh, Eric, speak to you uh, for sort of 30 or 40 minutes, and then we'll open it up to questions. So I'll turn the floor over now to Eric Tillman. Thank you. All right, well, yeah, thank you all for, thank you, Eric, for uh, the introduction, arranging this talk, and uh, thank you all for being here again between uh, the not-so-nice weather today and... Uh, and I uh, understand, again, it's also the exam season here, I guess, so... Uh, I do appreciate you all hanging around and, and braving the weather. Maybe it'll stop draining by the time I'm, I'm done talking. Um, so anyway, this, is, um, this, this talk is uh, part of a, of, a, of a bigger project I'm, I'm working on, on kind of trying to understand the, what I think are, are some of the dynamics that are, that are driving uh, mass politics in, in Western European countries. And... Actually, in some senses, we could also probably say more broadly Western countries, um, because I think obviously a, a fair bit of what I have to say, um, some of the insights I you know have in this, I think are you know common with the United States and and probably some of the other um, you know Australia, New Zealand, in some places. But of course, there's no European Union or anything like that to talk about in uh, in those countries, which is a big part of the story. But I think there are some of the broader points, I think, that, that we observe can be, can be made in other Western societies as well. Um, so, you know, what do, we, what do we see going on here? Um, kind of one chart here, this, this comes from, uh, this was on the BBC website, comes from the, the Pew Research Center. Um, nothing that, you know, you all haven't probably seen before, just showing, I mean, the basic insight here, I'm not so interested in the national differences here, but um, to, to make the point that over the past 20 or 25 years, um, EU membership has become more contentious. Um, nowhere more so than in Britain, of course. Uh, so, um, but, 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 you know, we see that the, the number of people who view the, the European Union unfavorably has, has increased and uh, even in, in some of the original six countries that we usually think of as being kind of bedrock countries of, of EU support, like, uh, like Germany, the Netherlands, uh, and even France here, where you see some, some very negative numbers. Um, so increased Euroscepticism is, is one thing we, we see then. Um, and then now this is a chart that I, that I uh, adapted from... Uh, uh, Matthew Goodwin, a political scientist down at um, University of Kent. And this is, you know, again, last weekend, of course, um, or a week and a half ago, I guess, we had the, the French presidential election runoff. And um, 
uh, as we know, we know the results of that, which uh, Macron won, but um, you know, we have this sort of broader pattern we've been seeing over time that um, the various respective father and daughter, Le Pen's, have, have been increasing their vote share. And of course, so that's kind of you know, the second point here is that we've seen um, certainly unevenly and progressing kind of at different, a different pace and to a different extent uh, across Western European societies, but um, the, the radical right is in, in virtually every West European society now is, um, is an electorally relevant uh, political force, although um, we'll come back around to that at the very end of the talk here in, in Britain as we, as we approach the, the general election here at the, at the end of this talk. So uh, rising Euroscepticism, rising uh, popular support for the radical rights, um, and of course, we, we tend to suspect that there's probably uh, some linkages between the two. And of course, for many people, uh, we want to understand what's, what's going on with, with all that. Um, so of course, there's been a lot of research already on these topics. Um, so a lot of the early research in the, 19, in the 1990s, particularly on support for the radical right, tended to look at various contextual factors that might explain why people were voting for the radical right, why people were turning against the EU. So things like immigration levels, either nationally or more locally, um, unemployment levels, um, perceptions of mainstream uh, collusion and corruption, more broadly maybe perceptions of uh, economic stagnation, low growth, uh, et cetera. Um, more recent research, probably more the larger kind of strands of, of this research in the, in the 21st century is probably uh, derived more on attitudinal explanations. So looking at kind of survey data to, to find kind of the correlates of, of factors that we think might be explaining why people uh, are, have anti-EU or, or, or support the, the radical right. And so these are things, I mean, we, we know pretty well. So people who are anti, express anti-immigrant attitudes are more likely to uh, support a radical right party. Um, people who express Eurosceptical ideas are more likely to support the radical right. Um, perhaps people who are anti-politics in, in some sort of fashion, which could range from populist attitudes to political cynicism or a lack of political trust uh, might also be more likely to be anti-EU and anti-mainstream parties. Um, now, this is a chart from a study by um, a political scientist named Elizabeth Ivars Flattern from uh, 2008, I think Comparative Political Studies. Um, and, you know, so she tested, this is kind of one of the, probably one of the more important pieces at the time on uh, support for the radical right, so she tried to test a variety of different explanations. And, you know, what we, what we kind of see here, I mean, the main, the thing she finds by far the strongest results for is, um, is uh, attitudes towards immigration. So preferences for restrictive immigrant, immigration policies. Um, by contrast, distrust of politicians, uh, distrust of, the European, of European institutions, um, right-wing economic attitudes have minimal to, to no effect in, in comparison. Um, another study here, this was taken from one of the LSE blogs, and I, I have to confess I forget who the, the author of this is, but um, they show that, of course, 
uh, Euroscepticism is strongly associated with the probability of voting for the radical right. So the more Euroskeptical you are, the more likely you are to vote for uh, the radical right. Probably no, uh, no great surprise there uh, to, to most people. Um, so all this is, is, is good, and you, know, we, 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 you, know, you can find very strong kind of associations and relationships between these, these, some of these attitudes like anti-immigrant attitudes or uh, hostility towards members of uh, foreign religions or things like that. Um, but you know, one question it kind of leaves us with, I think, is, um, well, you know, to put it a little bit, um, Bluntly, is you know who are these people? Um, so you know to to say well okay people who who hold anti-immigrant attitudes are likely to vote for a party that makes opposition to, to immigration kind of a central part of its of its policy program. I mean that seems pretty that seems pretty straightforward, but that doesn't tell us much about the question of you know what is it that predicts who is going to hold the sort of anti-immigrant attitudes that. Um, would make one likely to vote for a radical right party or to, to turn against the European Union. So that still leaves us, these attitudinal explanations, I think, still leave us with a, with a bit of a deeper puzzle we, we might want to understand. Um, more problematically or more also is, is the fact, I mean, in some, in some of these cases with some of these relationships, like, again, if we go back to this, um, oops, you know, if we go back to this last association here with like Euroscepticism and, and radical right support, um, it's kind of hard to say causally which is coming first here. I mean, it could easily be the case that people um, get drawn to supporting a radical right party for, for whatever reason, could be the anti-immigrant position or uh, whatever drives it, and then because they hear radical, the, the, the leaders of this party constantly criticizing the EU, they in turn become very hostile themselves towards the EU. So that's also, I think, kind of an equally plausible causal story if we're just kind of looking at the attitudinal relationship here. Uh, because we do know from decades of research on EU attitudes that, frankly, um, attitudes towards the EU have not been that well structured, historically speaking. And, and in a broader sense, I mean, that fits with a lot of literature we have from Europe and North America and elsewhere that that mass uh, attitudes towards foreign policy and, and generally complex political arrangements or policies are simply not that well-structured. People don't know enough about these things to really form uh, meaningful attitudes independently, so of course they're more likely perhaps to form uh, their attitudes by kind of receiving messages from the political and, and media elites that they trust. So one can easily imagine that this Euroscepticism, radical rights, relationship is reciprocal, or certainly is at least kind of uh, um, not as, as, as straightforward as, as that chart might suggest. So we probably still want to know something about the, the motivations, the, the dispositions that, that drive people in kind of 21st century modern economies to embrace anti-immigrant, radical right, populist um, types of, of attitudes and, and preferences. Um, we also have the puzzle that we see pretty significant cross-national differences across Western Europe. So again, very visibly in France, where you see Marine Le Pen making the runoff, garnering whatever it was, 34% of, of the vote in the runoff. Um, 
now we're talking about Austria. They're going to have elections in, in the autumn, and it's quite possible that the Freedom Party of Austria, the radical right party there, could win those elections. Um, certainly, they'll be, they'll be quite competitive with the, other, with the two mainstream parties. Um, that contrasts um, with, with a variety of other countries. I mean, so um, somewhere like Ireland, for example, where you, you have basically no radical right party to speak of, um, or say a country like Germany, where um, you know currently the, the alternative for Germany is you know polling in the kind of the upper single digits, so they haven't been as successful. So you, you do see these these pretty big uh, cross national differences, and and we want to, and so ideally we'd we'd understand something about those as as well. Um, so I'll kind of, you know, my, the argument I'm, I'm trying to advance here, and I'll kind of go through this in a, in a couple of slides here, um, I do think there, there are some important kind of background contextual changes. Um, the first of which I think we, we know pretty well. It's pretty kind of well established in a lot of different literatures, um, which is that we know obviously, and you know, I shouldn't say of the 1990s per se, you know, building up and perhaps culminating in the 1990s, but, you know, we have the shift in Western societies towards post-industrial economies, so you have the deindustrialization of, of Western societies, uh, which you know, has a whole sequence of effects in terms of union strength and um, party, you know, how the, the base of social democratic parties is, is constructed and so on. Um, and you know, again, we kind of know the story. So social democratic parties feeling the pressures of all of this um, shift in a, in a direction that we might describe as being more economically to the center uh, while perhaps becoming more kind of socio-culturally uh, liberal to attract more middle-class um, urban service workers and, and uh, professionals who um, previously had not made up such a big part of their base to compensate for the loss of um, as many kind of union uh, working-class voters. And so um, that, is, that is an important, you know, while I'm not making an argument that's you know, that support for the radical right or your skepticism is about the sort of uh, economic frustrations or whatever of the, or that is, you know, necessarily uh, a working class phenomenon or something like that. I do think what's important about this, of course, is that it, it kind of opens up a political space. So as the social democrat, you know, social democratic labor parties kind of shift in this direction, you have less conflict being fought out over some of the traditional class-based economic dimensions of, of conflict. Um, and you have increasingly parties uh, moving, and certainly center-left parties moving to embrace more socio-culturally liberal positions. So you do have segments of voters um, who no longer have a nat as, as natural of a home in, in a party as they previously would have, and you have kind of a, a possibility now for a party to kind of, you know, other parties, radical right parties to kind of move in and and attack these sort of socially liberal positions. Um, so I do think that's, that's kind of part of the background here. Um, and of course, you've got real things going on as well. Um, the After Maastricht, the, the expansion of the powers of the EU, the enlargement of the European Union, um, which again, I mean, of course, we know between Britain and, and the continent and some of the different countries, you have uh, different degrees of engagement with all of that. So adoption of the common currency and... Um, the policies that are put in place in terms of uh, free movement of, of uh, citizens from, from the post-communist countries after 2004. 
Um, but nonetheless, certainly the EU takes on a more visible role, getting into some of the traditional prerogatives of national sovereignty, like the currency, like the, the continued opening up of borders. Um, that can certainly be threatening to people who want to preserve national community. Um, and at the same time, of course, I mean, debates over immigration, multiculturalism, value change, and so on. Um, these are all things that are, that are going on to different degrees in, in the societies of, of Western Europe uh, and the threats that they, that they pose to kind of traditional conceptions of, of the nation. And again, I mean, these debates over immigration are um, being driven by a reality of immigration in West European societies. So, I mean, um, whether it's too much or happening too fast or coming from the wrong places or whatever the case might be, um, you know, these are, you know, kind of the context, the, the substance of debates that are, that are being driven by uh, a context in which immigration has increased and, of course, other factors, the concerns about terrorism and, and so on play into, play into all of this. So these are all kind of, I think, part of, uh, part of, of the background uh, that, that facilitates this change. Now, um, what do I think is actually going on here? Well, um, my basic argument in its simplest form is that there's a, there's a psychological um, disposition or concept called authoritarianism. And I'll come back a little bit to that term in, uh, in a couple of minutes here. I know for some, some people the, the term itself turns out to be a bit of a problem and understandably so. Um, but the study of authoritarianism goes back to the early post-war years, um, the uh, Theodore Adorno and the, the UC Berkeley uh, social psychologist who wrote The Authoritarian Personality in 1950. And while it's undergone all sorts of changes in terms of conceptualization and measurement over the, the decades since, um, authoritarianism is um, certainly one of the more enduring and important concepts in in political or social psychology. And so um, kind of in the contemporary era, you know, we, we kind of tend to describe authoritarianism as being this sort of uh, individual disposition that, uh, you know, is, is characterized by this, by this need to, to maintain social conformity or social co cohesion, uh, to maintain order in, in one's life um, that, that kind of leads towards a, a desire or a preference for kind of, you know, clearer boundaries between things, or you, know, you can say kind of maybe black and white thinking, so starker boundaries between what's right and what's wrong, you know, who's us and who's them, um, and, and uh, good and evil, and, and so on. Um, but, the, but the idea, of course, in, in contemporary thinking about this is, is that this is sort of a, a base level disposition that shapes one's broad outlook towards society and, and towards life, but the way that authoritarianism as a sort of a, a disposition gets translated into people's political attitudes and political behaviors, um, that has to involve, of course, some sort of mediation by uh, politics itself. So the sorts of threats that exist in society, um, the messages that are coming from, from political and media elites, and, and so on. And so, you know, essentially what my... What my argument here is that since the 1990s, we've seen increasingly a, a shift in debates in, in national societies towards 
uh, one in which those, those threats to the national community are increasingly emphasized and, and debated themselves. So in various countries, you have Euroskeptical elites, Euroskeptical media, Euroskeptical organizations, you have the rise of radical right parties. And so kind of the, the common thread here is that their, their messages tend to suggest that the EU, that immigration, that permissive social policies, that all these things pose a threat to, to that sense of national community um, that high authoritarians would be, uh, or people that kind of score high in authoritarianism would be predisposed to, um, to be more concerned about protecting. So thinking about you know, Euroscepticism, well, you can really kind of, um, you can activate the concerns of high authoritarians and, and perhaps motivate them to become Euroskeptical by emphasizing the fact that the EU leads to a loss of national control over borders, over policies, um, by you know, expanding you know, one's kind of citizenship, one's boundaries to include a, a wider range of societies and, and the, again, the kind of the inability of of, a, of a, national, a nation state to preserve those borders, or preserve that definition of society, so leading to more immigration, more diversity, uh, and the loss, again, of, of traditional sources of, of political legitimacy. So again, you know, I think in, in certain symbolic ways, the common currency is probably a very powerful thing in, in many countries, so losing, losing your national currency and having it turned over to... Uh, the sort of this European currency is a very, um, perhaps a very important symbolic uh, shift. Um, support for the radical right, again, kind of, you know, similar argument here. So radical right parties emphasize these concerns, the threat that immigration and the loss of sovereignty, the need to protect law and order, the need to predict, uh, protect traditional values, and, you know, these are understood in different ways and by different radical right parties, whether it's kind of more conservative religious values or whether it's some sort of um, sense of you know, European liberal values that we sometimes hear some of the radical right parties in the Netherlands and, and other countries talking about. Um, so the basic argument, though, is that this, this sort of shift in debate that's being driven uh, by the radical right and by Euroskeptical organizations that's kind of posing a threat, you know, it's emphasizing and debating this, this threat to the national community is leading to uh, a shift in, in people's attitudes, citizens' attitudes and, and citizens, to some degree, even citizens' party loyalties. That's increasingly sorted by how authoritarian they are. So high authoritarians are being drawn towards the radical right, being drawn towards Euroskeptical messages because this sense, this message of a threat to the national community is, is resonant with them, with their underlying dispositions, and they're more likely to, um, to be responsive to the sense that, they, that their societies are under threats. Um, people who score low in authoritarianism, so people who are, um, at least if the theory is right, are more concerned about the preservation of individual autonomy, um, who are more willing to accept or perhaps embrace you know, ambiguity, diversity, um, and, and the like as, as sort of trade-offs to maintain their own individual autonomy from sort of an external social pressure. Um, these messages don't resonate with them, but perhaps pro-European messages that emphasize open borders, 
diversity experience and so on are more likely to, to resonate with them. So part of the argument here also, I mean, is that, you know, this is not a, not strictly speaking, a one-sided shift per se. Um, high authoritarians are perhaps shifting towards being more Euroskeptical, more likely to support the radical rights. Um, we can't say that low authoritarians are shifting away from supporting the radical right per se, because there was no, you know, in many cases, there was no radical right party previously, and they weren't supporting them. But they may be, well, being shifting away from being Euroskeptical for other reasons motivated by concerns about economic fairness or, or other things that may have structured their attitudes more back in the 80s or, or 90s. So um, I'll talk a little bit about some different tests I've done here, uh, some different analyses, some different specific predictions that, that I've made. So um, the basic gist of it is I expect that authoritarianism is, is going to be associated with, and when I say authoritarianism, again, I mean people that are higher in authoritarianism are going to be more like, are going to be less likely to support the European Union or support European integration uh, measured in different ways. Um, they're going to be more likely to perceive that European integration is a threat to their national societies. Um, and they're going to be more likely to, to support radical right parties where those, those parties exist. Um, the other thing that I'll, that I'll show a little bit of evidence on, though, is also that this is, this is not sort of, again, a, a permanent relationship. This is something that's emerged, really, um, since the 1990s or even just in the, kind of the, in the 21st century. So this, this relationship has only emerged as a result of those contextual changes since the 1990s and the degree to which you have a sort of elite debate emerging that is structured around questions of uh, a threat to the national community, which makes it possible then for uh, people who are high in authoritarianism to, to kind of respond to it. So that's what I'll, I'll talk a little bit about in terms of uh, some analyses. Um, I won't bore you too much with all the details of, of some of the different surveys and measures and stuff like that I'm using here. Uh, we can certainly come back and talk to this in the, in the Q&A if you have any questions. But long story short, I'm using a variety of different data sources. You know, one of the challenges in the study is finding appropriate survey questions and measures that can actually be used. Um, so I, I use some different variables here. Most of the stuff I'm doing here is, is kind of you know, pretty standard, I think, from uh, what's in the literature on measuring EU attitudes or measuring party support in, in survey-based research. Um, talk a little bit more about authoritarianism itself. Now, um, again, as I hinted at earlier, of course, um, if I were going back to 1950 and creating a term to describe this, this disposition, it's probably not the word I would have chosen. Um, it's problematic on a couple of different levels, I think. Um, one is certainly simply that it's, it's kind of an insulting term. Uh, and so inevitably, like when I, I wrote a LSE blog a couple of years ago on, on some of my research on authoritarianism and EU attitudes, and uh, one of the responses I always you know, get from, got from Twitter on that was, you know, well, I'm not authoritarian, the EU is authoritarian. Um, so, you know, and I, can, I can sympathize with that. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be offended if somebody called me authoritarian too. Um, so, you know, it's not the best term, but of course the problem is 
there's 60 years of literature and research based around this term. And so, of course, one always faces the, the dilemma of whether to sort of uh, drive off in a new direction and uh, add yet another concept and yet another term. And I think political psychology has enough of them already um, to, to the mix. Um, you know, of course, the other problem, and again, that, that sort of, you know, I'm not authoritarian, the EU is authoritarian, comment drives that, of course, is that there's a bit of conceptual confusion in political uh, science generally because you have the sort of comparative politics understanding of authoritarianism as, as a political system, um, sort of, you know, opposite of democracy based on um, rule by a, an elite who's not accountable. And so, you know, of course, I'm not trying to suggest now um, the original study of authoritarianism in the 1950s was kind of motivated um, by the sense that authoritarianism, the political concept, will uh, lead to increased support for authoritarian forms of governance, i.e. fascism. Um, it's not necessarily the case to say that people who are high in authoritarianism are somehow anti-democratic people uh, or something like that. And I think that would be, that'd be an unfair argument to make, and I don't think it's, it's correct. Um, but so, you know, under certain circumstances, they'll be more likely to endorse uh, essentially kind of politically authoritarian uh, policies, but only under certain senses of threat and certain circumstances, which are themselves very certainly contingent. Um, so anyway, kind of a, to kind of cap that off, if you don't like the term authoritarianism, um, you can, whenever I say the word authoritarianism, if you'd like, you, could su you can substitute the slightly more novel and uh, slightly more cumbersome phrase, needs for security and certainty, which has been advanced in the literature as a, um, a fairly parallel, not exactly the same thing, but a very similar uh, concept uh, that doesn't have quite the same um, connotation to it. Um, so authoritarianism, how do we, how do we measure it? It's been one of the big problems over the years. Um, and so these days, the, the sort of the gold standard for, for measuring authoritarianism is actually to ask people questions about the values that children should be instilled with. So basically, if you, if you look at this sort of a standard question here that you uh, where it's fielded, it's been used in the American National Election Study, it's been used in the European Values Study. Um, I was able to convince uh, surveys in, in Germany and Switzerland to field these questions, but basically the gist of the question is you ask respondents, we think they're all, are, we well agree that there are a lot of important values that children should be taught, but if you had to choose between these different pairs of, of values, which do you consider to be more important that children be uh, brought up to, to have. And um, now these are, these are staggered here because it's kind of, you know, from, taken from a survey questionnaire where you don't want to have them always be A or B. But um, basically, respect for elders, obedience, good manners, and being well-behaved are the quote-unquote authoritarian responses. Independent self-reliance, curiosity, and being considerate are the the low authoritarian responses. And so the basic idea that this is trying to capture uh, in survey responses is a sort of a trade-off between autonomy and, and conformity. 
So um, if you think that it's more important for children to be independent or self-reliant or curious, you think that it's more important that they be able to develop skills of being individually autonomous and using their own judgment in the world. Uh, if you think it's more important they have respect for elders, obedience, or good manners, and so on, um, you think it's more important that they be taught to conform with the sort of dictates of, of society and not exercise their own individuality as much. Um, these questions are the most ideal because they get kind of to the heart of the concept, and also they're not contaminated by politics. Uh, because the big trade-off here, if you look at some of the other questions that, for example, have been included in the British election study and some other um, the more traditional questions we might call kind of the right-wing authoritarianism questions, where people are asked to agree with um, survey questions such as young people don't have enough respect for traditional values, uh, we need censorship to uphold moral values, for some crime the death penalty is the most appropriate punishment. I think occasionally the British study uh, included a question about whipping. Or not the British. Some, someone did. Some, something included a question saying, you know, people should be whipped for certain crimes or something like that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, say, make of that what you will. Um, but so, you know, these again kind of get into, you know, they get at some of the same ideas here, but. Um, perhaps part of the problem with some of these questions is they're more contaminated by the political attitudes that they're supposed to explain. Um, so, you know, they in, they in turn get into the very messaging of what radical right parties or uh, conservative parties might be talking about in, in, in general. So, where possible, I, I try to use these, but in some cases I, I have to use these. Um, I've done some analyses using other data I collected that show that, I mean, they do they do correlate pretty well. I mean, they are clearly kind of capturing or measuring the same underlying disposition in, in people's responses, but um, with these, you're, you oftentimes find a bit of a stronger relationship between uh, these kind of authoritarian attitudes and, um, and political behaviors because there, I think these questions are actually capturing some of those behaviors in these, in these questions themselves. So they're more kind of directly proximate. Um, so anyway, some, some results to, to talk about here. Um, so first off, this is based on some, some regression analyses in, in some different national election surveys in Austria, Britain, and Germany. Um, so this is a basic, these are kind of predicted probabilities that are generated from, from doing some, some multivariate regressions here. So you have a 0 to 10 scale of support for further European integration. So 10 would uh, be agreement with the statement that um, European integration should be pushed further. Uh, zero would be agreement with the statement that European integration has already gone too far or European integration needs to be um, pulled back, depending, you know, kind of depending on which survey, which country we're talking about. Um, and so these are kind of the predicted values for uh, people who are, who are um, lower in authoritarian, two standard deviations below the mean on, on authoritarianism, and uh, two people, uh, two, standard devi two standard deviations above the mean on authoritarianism. So basically the upshot here you see um, high authoritarians are more likely to be Eurosceptical than low authoritarian is authoritarians. 
And, um, you know, that's after you're controlling for a whole wide range of things like um, self-reported left-right ideology, income, education, age, gender, uh, occupation, um, most of the usual things that you would tend to include in, in a survey-based analysis of this sort. Now, you know, you also, again, you do see some cross-national differences here. So strongest effect in Britain, uh, pretty strong effect in Austria, weaker effect in Germany. Um, now, some of that is, again, because the surveys and the measures are not the same across countries, so we can't fully make a judgment about that. But some of it is also probably, I think, is a meaningful cross-national difference that you don't have as much contention, perhaps, over the EU and in Germany that's driven by uh, national threats. Um, fears about the European immigration. This is, these are uh, some survey questions I fielded in a German study in 2014 in the German Longitudinal Election Study in, in 2014. Um, so uh, when you think about the EU, do you think that, you know, um, you know what, so four questions here asking about the respondents' fears about the European, about the European Union. Um, so will Germany be forced to take in more migrants as a result of EU membership? Will Germany be forced to change its laws as a result of EU membership? Will Germany be forced to pay more money to other EU countries? Uh, will Germany lose jobs as a result of EU membership? So again, uh, now these are just kind of differences in means between high and low authoritarians, but again, we see quite big gaps here between the, the high end and low authoritarians here. So high authoritarians are much more likely to, to fear all these, these threats to, to German society. And we might also note that we see the biggest gap here on the migrant question. So the biggest difference between them and low authoritarians may well be the fact that they're worried that EU membership is going to, to force them to accept migrants from, from other countries. Um, I'll just kind of skip over this just briefly to note that um, if we take some of the measures that have been used to, uh, to correlate with, with EU attitudes in the past or with radical right support, so things like exclusive national identity, uh, anti-immigrant attitudes, hostility towards members of other religions. Um, what we see here is basically that authoritarianism seems to structure these attitudes. Um, so if you score higher in authoritarianism, you're more likely to express pride in your nationality. Um, this is not the same thing as being exclusively a national identifier, but unfortunately the European Value Survey didn't have that exact question. Um, you're less likely to express any sort of identification as, as being European, either shared or exclusively, shared with your nationality or exclusively. Um, again, you're more likely to express opposition to immigration, and you're more likely to express hostility towards members of other religions. Um, so again, I mean, kind of the import of that, again, is that these are some of the factors that have been talked about in the literature as explaining um, EU attitudes or explaining radical right support and um, again I think we, we add something to this by using sort of a dispositional measure because we see that uh, authoritarianism is, is again probably structuring some of this. Um, basically this is probably a bit complicated so let's kind of walk through the, the stats of this but basically the um, the main thing I would say about this is this is basically an analysis over time from the 1990s until 2008, um, analyzing how the relationship between authoritarianism and EU attitudes 
has shifted during that time period from 1990 until 2008. And um, the main finding, well, there are two main findings here. One is that on a general level, that relationship between authoritarianism and EU attitudes has become stronger. It's effectively non-existent in 1990, and now it is existent and it's negative. So people who are higher in authoritarianism are more likely to, or less likely to support EU membership or European integration. Um, furthermore, what I, what, I, what I do is also break down the, um, the respondents into whether they live in a country in which there's a higher degree of party conflict over EU membership or whether there's a, a lower level of, of party conflict. So in other words, do you have parties that are taking really strongly opposing pro and anti-EU positions Obviously, I mean, the UK would be a pretty good example of that over the years. Or um, are you living in a country in which there's a, more of a relative consensus over EU membership, uh, which in practical terms always means a consensus in favor of, of EU membership? Uh, and so, you know, a country like maybe Germany would be a pretty decent example of, of a country like that. And so basically what I find here is the, in the higher conflict countries where you have more debate, so you have more of a, of a presence of, of anti-EU parties, that relationship has become even stronger uh, in the low conflict countries where you don't have much of, a, of an elite debate over the EU. Um, there is no relationship between authoritarianism and, and EU attitudes. So that would be places like probably Germany, um, Ireland, Spain, Portugal, would be kind of illustrative of, of those countries where you don't have as much elite conflict. Um, so that can be taken again to suggest that the, that the sort of this association is growing as a result of elite conflict. One might also take it to suggest that in the future, if some of these low conflict countries uh, develop a higher degree of elite conflict over European uh, EU membership or European integration, that we might begin to see this authoritarianism EU relationship emerge more strongly in those countries as well. So in part, perhaps in some of those low conflict countries, you just haven't had um, those authoritarian dispositions be activated yet as much because they haven't been hearing these messages about how their, their national community is, is under threat from EU membership to the same extent that people living in the high conflict countries are. Um, finally, then, authoritarianism, support for the radical right. So here are some charts from some different countries. This is Austria, um, Britain, Finland, and uh, Germany. And so basically the gist of it, this is kind of, a, you know, again, kind of a predicted probability based on, uh, on a logistic regression analysis of the likelihood of voting for, reporting having voted for a radical right party. So... Um, in Austria, for example, the likelihood that you would say that you voted for the Freedom Party of Austria in the last election, this is, 20, this is from 2013, so the last, the last parliamentary election, um, goes from virtually zero from those at the lowest level of authoritarian attitudes to uh, being close to 50% or 0.5 among those at the highest level of authoritarianism. Um, now, the scales are a bit different on all of these, so it's, it's lower here for UKIP, but the same relationship still holds. As you get to the, 
right-hand scale here, you're at above a 0.2 probability of voting for UKIP um, as compared to being at something like you know 0.02. Um, and again, the the, fine, the relationship is weaker here for Germany again, in part just because there aren't as many supporters of the of the alternative for Germany, but the relationship is still is there and it's it's also quite strong in, in Finland. Um, I have some other evidence from some from some other countries as well, so from the European election survey, so who you voted for in the European Parliament elections in 2014, and they kind of also produce the uh, the same general finding. So, um, what do we take away from all of this, or what do I what do I think we should take away from all of this, and what do we what do we still not know, and what do we still need to think more about, and and what's still out there for us to, to kind of puzzle over. Um, well, I think, you know, a couple of puzzles we still have to grapple with. Um, you know, part of the thing, we, you know, we tend to do in the social sciences is we get up here, we write a paper, we give a, we give a talk in which we kind of tell you, you know, there's this one kind of monocausal explanation of, of what's going on, right? Um, now, you know, obviously we know that's not the case. I mean, I... If I, if, I, if I start showing you the R squareds from you know, the analyses I'm running, certainly I'm not explaining 100% of the variance in why people are anti-EU or why people vote for radical right parties. So there's obviously more we don't understand and there's more to, uh, to the puzzle. And, and I think there's also some, some puzzles about what, I'm, you know, what I've described here and what we're also seeing out there in the world that we still we need to think more about and we still don't totally understand. Um, now this is this is kind of an electoral map from the the first Austrian presidential election, the one that later got annulled and then redone and produced the same results, uh, slightly stronger results. Um, so the green areas are the uh, are the areas that voted for the the Green Party candidates. Uh, the blue areas are, are the areas where the, the majority of the vote went to the the Freedom Party candidate, the Radical Right candidate. And so, of course, one of the things we see here, now this, this is one of those maps where they kind of, so this is kind of the actual Austrian map, and then this is one of those maps that's been kind of scaled to population. Um, so this giant thing is Vienna, um, and so on. So, of course, you know, one of the things we, we very commonly see in, in kind of the relationship between, uh, or, you know, when we, we look at patterns of radical right voting uh, or Euroscepticism is we, we oftentimes see this pretty big urban-rural divide. Um, or, you know, metropolitan versus smaller and, and more rural areas. Um, so, you know, you know, we don't, I think we, we don't totally understand why that's the case. I mean, how much of it is because maybe low authoritarian people increasingly cluster into cities, into big cities in, in a modern technology-based post-industrial economy how much of it is, is um, because of socialization that takes place locally, um, how much of it is maybe because of the economic interests that are represented in, in big cities by, uh, you know, that are better, you know, that benefit more from EU membership and, and participation in the global economy and immigration and so on. Um, so I think, you know, there, there's some different puzzles we still don't quite have worked out. Um, now the second one here, this, is, um, this was a chart that was in the, the Financial Times, I believe, the day after the, the French presidential election. Um, so this was also showing a very common pattern that we would see if we were talking about the Brexit vote, 
um, or the you know, support for the radical right party, radical right parties in other countries, or heaven forbid, the, uh, the Donald Trump vote in the United States, um, which is that we see that uh, support for Marine Le Pen was highest. Now, this is not survey data. This is sort of district-level aggregate data that we're looking at here. But support for Le Pen was highest in areas where fewer people had university degrees. So where educational attainment was lower on average, it was higher for Le Pen in areas where average incomes were lower, and it was higher in areas where a greater share of the workforce was, was blue collar. And so again, I think this is, you know, this would look, if I had a similar chart here for, for the Brexit vote, we'd see uh, very similar results in many ways. So um, again, you know, what's, what's going on with all of this? I mean, what is, what is the sort of relationship between disposition, education, um, occupation, income, and so on, and, and people's attitudes? people's voting behavior. We don't, we don't have all of this worked out yet. There's clearly, uh, there's clearly more to this puzzle that we need to understand. Um, but again, at the same time, it is possible, I think, to, to construct some stories here that do bring in kind of dispositional factors like authoritarianism to understand um, how they, they can still operate through things like education. Um, then finally, I promised I'd talk a little bit about Britain here. Uh, the current general election campaign that's underway. Now, this is a chart that, again, Matthew Goodwin posted. Uh, this, what this chart is showing is people who reported voting UKIP in 2015, in the last general election, and what they're saying they'll do, you know, at each subsequent survey wave when they're being asked. You know, what will you do now at the next general election? And, um, of course, what we see here is a big drop-off in the number of people who, who now say they'll vote UKIP in this general election. And so almost all, you know, a huge chunk of those voters have gone uh, to the Tories um, at the expense of UKIP. So um, the import of this, of course, is, is again, to kind of remind us that the, the, the mainstream response is how mainstream parties and leaders respond to the radical right challenge and to the degree to which they embrace the messages of the radical right uh, can play a pretty important role in structuring how those, those party loyalties might develop over time. So, you know, part of what's going on here, presumably, is that, is that under Theresa May in the past year, the conservatives have kind of become the party of Brexit. And so they're capturing a heavy portion of basically everybody who supports leaving the European Union, uh, and so far without suffering a lot of losses uh, from their own voter base among those who voted remain. Um, though we'll see how that develops in, into the longer future. But again, we see, I mean, we've seen in other countries, we've seen um, in the Netherlands, I think one of the reasons ultimately that the, that the Party for Freedom didn't do as well is in part because the mainstream um, uh, People's Party for Democracy of, of Prime Minister Mark Rutte has adopted essentially watered-down rhetoric and policies on some of the more kind of anti-immigrant messages. Um, I think we've seen, you know, Nicolas Sarkozy did some of that in France back during his, uh, his first campaign and his first term, his one term in office. Um, so obviously mainstream parties are, uh, how they respond to all of this is, is an important part of, of this dynamic as well. Um, all of this again, 
what we still don't know. Future directions, things I, I want to do more of. Uh, I think we, one thing we need to understand is um, how do high authoritarians behave in contexts where there is not a radical right party. So that would include countries like Ireland today, as well as a country like, say, Sweden or Germany 15 years ago, where there was no real radical right party out there. Uh, that's something I want to look into. I think we, um, I want to look a little bit more into thinking about how we're, how I'm measuring elite conflict. Uh, and one of the things I'm really interested in doing more of is kind of tracking these sort of changing loyalties of, of high authoritarian voters since, uh, since the 1990s and how they've, you know, where they've migrated from and what parties they've, they've migrated to. Um, so thank you all and I'll be happy to answer any questions. Yeah, if, if we go way back to that chart at the very beginning here, um, yeah, I mean, there's some, um, I mean, you were right about that. Yeah, you, you, you did see this uh, correctly here that um, actually, I mean, two of the countries where the EU is, is, is viewed more, most favorably are Poland and Hungary, where you're having some of the most problematic kind of populist right-wing dynamics in terms of the ruling party. Um, recently, it might be 2015 or something. So I mean, it's, it's quite recent. Um, you know, I mean, this. Yeah, you know, as part of the reason I I try to I don't include East and Central Europe in, in some of these analyses because there are some different dynamics going on there. Um, but but yeah, you know, again, you, you do see this very interesting pattern here, though. That you know what what I would kind of keep the focus on more is is some of the countries of Western and Northern Europe here, where you. Uh, you do see um, this, this greater division over EU membership in, in countries where, um, you know, historically we've thought of them as being very, quote-unquote, pro-EU. Um, part of the story here in, in countries like Hungary and Poland is probably the amount of money they receive from the EU. Um, Viktor Orban, in particular, I think plays this very nicely. He, he happily accepts all the money that the EU sends along to Hungary and then uh, turns around and rails against the EU on, on uh, all, the, all the cultural things that the EU is, is doing that are going to ruin Hungarian society. Um, now, can, going back to your, your first question here, kind of about the, the sort, of, um, sort of nexus between authoritarianism and, and immigration and so on. So yeah, I mean, the idea of sort of the contemporary theorizing is that, you know, authoritarianism itself is sort of a pretty deep-seated disposition. 
uh, that you have towards life and society and everything. And so, um, you know, presumably, it, you know, it, it exists fairly stably, it's fairly stable in a person's adult lifetime, whether they're more of a high or a low authoritarian. Um, and, you know, thus presumably it's, it's relatively constant, the sort of distribution within a society. Um, although we do see, you know, there is some degree of generational change over time. I mean, if you look at sort of how it is distributed in, in a society now in 2017, there are more low authoritarians than there were, say, 30 or 40 years ago. So, um, you know, there definitely are some, there are definitely are some socialization uh, factors that, that matter as well. Um, and whether that's, you know, actual changes in parenting or changes in just sort of social values or, or, or whatever is, is kind of hard, something I can't really say. Um, but yeah, so we have this idea that, you know, this sort of authoritarian disposition is, is fairly stable or fairly fixed within a person, but how, whether and how it manifests itself into people's attitudes and behaviors, that's going to be conditional on what they see as being a, a threat to uh, a threat to society. So, you know, a hundred years ago, let's say here in, in Britain, maybe there might have been a sort of 50 years ago or whatever, there might have been sort of a, a latent potential that high authoritarians would have an anti-immigrant attitudes. But if immigration was not really a thing that anybody could um, see as being a threat to British society, then there would be no real manifestation of that kind of latent uh, authoritarian attitude into an expression of hostility towards immigrants or uh, support for anti-immigrant politics or movements. So you do, at some level, you need that, that perception of threat, which is, you know, again, going to be at least somewhat grounded in reality um, and is going to be also, again, I think, in most cases also kind of activated by elite messages. So politicians and media figures telling you that there is this thing happening and that it's a threat to society. So, you know, again, with something like immigration, I mean, it can be, it can be framed in many different ways by political elites. We can be told that immigration is a threat to our national culture and our social cohesion. We can be told that immigration is a boon to our economy. We can be told that it's a, it's a good thing that gives us a more vibrant society and better food and all sorts of other things. Um, not that that would have any relevance here, right? <laughs> Maybe I better be careful what I say. Um, so, you know, so you do have to have that sort, of, that sort of messaging as well to tell people this is a threat. So again, you know, with something like the European Union, people really probably need to be told that because most people don't really know what to think about the European Union absence and sort of elite message. Um, now, about kind of the different sorts of immigration, yeah, I think, I think you're, you're right in a sense that really what this, what this argument would suggest is that it's more about the sort of the cultural threats that, that immigration poses rather than a more direct economic threats. So high authoritarians are kind of activated to be anti-immigrant because they, they perceive immigrants as being essentially an other who come in with different religions, different cultural practices, different languages, who don't fit into their conception of what British, French, German society is, is supposed to be. 
Um, but you know, again, I think um, while I think you're right on some level that this that this does kind of make for a meaningful sort of non-European versus European dimension. Um, at the same time, you can certainly also have a sort of a culturally based um, threat criticism of, of immigration or migration from, from the rest of the EU as well. So you can certainly, you can certainly have elites, and you do have elites who make the argument that, that people coming from Romania or Eastern Europe are, you know, again, bringing in crime or bringing in uh, other cultural problems that you know, quote unquote, we didn't have before they showed up. Does that kind of that answer your question? Can I ask one more? Yeah. That's a yeah. I think that that's a good question. Again, that's why I kind of highlighted some of these things at the end as, as puzzles. I don't think we I don't think we know. Um, probably if you if you got a bunch of, of social psychologists who really study authoritarianism as as such, um, some of them would they would tell you that there there's probably some degree to which it's inherited, as are other kind of dimensions of a personality like openness to experience or um, or whatever, um, but some of it is, is certainly is presumably also, you know, a result of socialization, which you know again, so it could be about how you were brought up, the sort of family environment, how your your parents were, um, and as well as kind of the broader social context. I mean, part of the reason I think you probably see a little bit of a decline in the sort of the overall distribution in the number of high authoritarians now is because, of course, society now is more permissive, we, uh, we don't think children should be whipped as much uh, for misbehaving as we used to. And um, in general, you know, schools put more emphasis on uh, critical thinking as opposed to sort of rote memorization and, and so on. So there's a lot of ways in which uh, someone growing up in the past 20 years is encouraged to be more individually autonomous by society at large and presumably also by their parents uh, then would have been the case, you know, 50 years ago or, some, or something like that. Um, so, but, you know, no, we, we don't totally have the answer to that. And again, I, you know, I do suspect, so when we talk about something like education, um, you know, there, there is probably some sort of complicated relationship here. So if you grow up in a kind of, um, you know, a blue-collar family, uh, it may well be the case, I mean, your parents, if your parents are blue-collar, they may... Um, subscribe to more authoritarian forms of parenting that they, and worldviews that they sort of pass on to you. If there is some inherited dimension to it, of course you'll inherit it. Um, and of course, you're, you're sort of the sort of community environment you grow up in probably will reinforce a lot of that as well, uh, as opposed to somebody who grows up in a more kind of white-collar, university-educated, uh, affluent environment. Um, so all those things probably do factor back into it, and all those, of course, make you perhaps less likely to go on to, to go to university 
and, and so on to kind of maybe perpetuate something of a, of a problem. So yeah, we do find something of an association, I think, uh, between things like education and authoritarianism. So um, the low educated, the less educated are more likely to be higher in authoritarianism, but it's certainly, it's, you know, it's not like a absolute relationship. You have highly educated, high authoritarians, low educated, low authoritarians, and so on. slide that said it, it was char um, characterized by a drive to social cohesion, mm -hmm. for political stability, and a, a kind of a absence of violence, and that's the drive behind it. Is, is, that, is that correct? Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, well again, so part of the, part of the reason on that slide I, I sort of highlight, because again, you, you don't have 100% agreement upon it by everyone who, who studies it. Um, I tend to think that it's, it's mostly about that sort of sense of wanting to maintain social cohesion, which is kind of at its core, which then probably has, you know, these kind of these radiating effects coming off of it in terms of a desire for stronger need for security and stuff like that. And, and anyway. their answer, um, I mean, I'm, I'm French, a student of the French Revolution and so on, and we, okay. you know, the, that's where the, the right left obviously was born, mm -hmm. and the right was uh, pro-monarch, Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and the left was obviously pro-democracy. Mm -hmm. Now, isn't the answer, I mean, obviously there's a problem of social cohesion in places uh, like the UK or, or America or, or the round, really. Uh, and security and political stability, are, I mean, it just takes a look at the World Bank indicators to, to see it's not that stable. But it, it seems to me that the answer of people like Le Pen and everything is a strong leader, right? Mm -hmm. And is you know, one central executive figure who's going to answer the, the solution. And mm -hmm. on, on the other hand, if we look at uh, other movements who are looking for social cohesion, political stability, and, uh, and predictability, you know, if the most stable, least violent countries in the world are what, Switzerland, New Zealand, Finland, Sweden, the most democratic countries in the world. Now, from what you were you were talking, I've had the impression several times that you that that, that your uh, entrance rules, if I could say, would uh, lead uh, Switzerland to be a very high uh, authoritarian country. But that's probably not what you find. Is it? Have you seen that? Yeah. But but the point is, you know, they're not part of Europe. They have this thing about uh, intransigence and. And their uh, cultural national identity, they don't really, you know, want to argue. But on the other hand, the whole system is based around open discussion and liberal values, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Switzerland also has one of the highest percentages of foreign-born populations yeah. in Europe, and also one of the highest levels of support for uh, the radical right, the Swiss People's Party. So, so my question, just mm -hmm. to make it simpler, is basically, wouldn't it be fair to say that it's essentially characterized by a uh, drive for social cohesion and uh, drive for political stability and uh, and predictability, but answered by a strong executive. While there is a, an alternative, maybe a more educated one, which is also a drive for social cohesion, etc., but that is answered by a sort of democratic means. Whilst as it is now, you kind of, it seems to me like you're leaping uh, Swiss 
New Zealand highly democratic countries with highly executive um, proposals. You know what I'm saying? Uh, well, I mean, but yeah, the point, I mean, all the countries we're talking about here are, are highly democratic well, countries, I mean, right? I mean, calling you know, um, the UK a democracy and calling Switzerland a democracy is two different things. We really have to qualify, uh, mm -hmm. you know, well, I suppose if we're on, on that level, I guess. <laughs> but, but yeah, what, what I mean is uh, if you have uh, a forge for your national identity, if, for example, you have assemblies in, in all your cantons, and in every town mm -hmm. you have a place where you can actually practice your national identity, isn't it uh, striking that Switzerland, despite having four different languages, all these various cultures, is probably one of the most strongly elected countries in the world. Now, if you want a, a model for successful multiculturalism, I probably wouldn't look at a loose confederation of barely uh, living together uh, communities like America. Uh, and I would look to, uh, to a country like, like Switzerland, like you know Sweden perhaps, or New Zealand. But might be beyond the scope of I think, what you're trying. <laughs> yeah. well, what I'm trying to do is redefine the, the definition of authoritarianism to exclude uh, solutions like uh, collective democracy. Whilst you, well, you tend yeah. to put collectivism as the strong man putting a, a uniform and uh, a uniform which allows for. Well, again, I mean, authoritarianism is, is, again, just a psychological disposition towards this sort of. You know, I want cohesion. I want you know order, et cetera, in, in you know in what I see, see in society around me. Um, all the political details, I mean, have to be filled in by some sort of political elite. And I mean, there's, I mean, there's probably a variety of, of yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, there's a, pr a variety of messages you could, um, you could offer that would appeal to high authoritarians. I mean, again, um, one of those is sort of a you know we need a strong man who's going to come in and club everybody over the head until we, until we get along again. Um, but again, I mean, and, you know, this would be the argument you'll, you'll hear some people talk about in, in, say, the Scandinavian countries like Sweden, is that, you know, probably what was going on 30, 40, 50 years ago is that a lot of highly authoritarian, blue-collar Swedish Swedes were voting for the Social Democrats um, because, in part, they're offering this sort of highly cohesive model of social democracy that's about kind of, you know, creating this sort of society in which everyone is, is protected from the vagaries of the market and um, taken care of as Swedes. Um, and so, you know, that kind of you know, makes sense in a highly homogeneous uh, mid-century Swedish society. And, you know, so one of the arguments you'll hear is um, part of the breakdown of support for social democracy or for the social democrats part of the reason you see the rise of the Sweden Democrats, the radical right there, um, that this all ties back to um, questions related to immigration. So when more and more of Swedish society, when people look around them or you know, when they read the newspapers and are told what they're supposed to be seeing, um, is made up of you know, non-native Swedes, then you begin to think, well, you know, you're getting foreign religions, foreign customs, so on, and and you know, this is a threat. We need. We had this sort of idealized Swedish society. It's breaking down, and we need to protect this. Yeah. Marshall, is is 
am I right in understanding that authoritarian uh, authoritarian tendencies exist on a spectrum of interests, mm -hmm. and that if that's the case, it, that tendency can become more activated or less so. Mm -hmm. And are there any examples or any influencing factors within society that have de-escalated that tendency so it becomes less of a contributing factor towards our decision making? I've seen you've spoken about the reasons that it becomes activated. Yeah. Do we have any examples historically over the last 50 years of times when it's become deactivated and what causes it? Yeah, I mean, we'll probably, you know, arguably, you could probably say during some of the, um, during some of the kind of immediate post-war era in, in a lot of countries where you had a um, relatively homogeneous society still, so you didn't have sort of threats from immigration or whatever. You had sort of elite messages that were more driven towards kind of consensus on a wide range of issues. Um, and um, you know, building up the welfare state and 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 so on, um, and you know, a relatively kind of growing period of prosperity and relatively uh, high kind of security from the threat of war or violence or or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, yeah, it's it's certainly not something that's always it's all that's always kind of escalating. Um, you can also probably think of you know various small-scale examples from, from any number of countries where over time, I mean, things that were previously seen as being threatening to society, um, over time that, that threat fades away and, and becomes accepted, right? So, um, you know, right now we might be going through that with, with an issue like, say, same-sex marriage in a lot of Western countries where perhaps 15 years ago, I mean, maybe I'm thinking about this too much as an American, but, you know, 15 years ago, Republican Party can mobilize a lot of voters by saying, you know, hey, if those Democrats come to power, they're going to, you know, let same-sex couples start getting married, and suddenly our whole way of society is going to fall apart. And now, increasingly, I think, you know, it's becoming more and more accepted, and probably 20, 30 years from now, you know, it won't be a, sort of a source of threat to our sort of idea of, of what society is or something like that. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you know, you could, you could have a period of declining immigration, you can have value change, things becoming, you know, generational change, which leads to people growing up in sort of a new reality where, where things are not as threatening anymore. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely not always just kind of going up or whatever, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm not convinced of this notion that the authoritarianism becomes activated and then it sounds a bit like, I'm not sure whether this is what you mean, but it sounds a bit like it is activated when the author, authoritarian characters vote for right-wing parties and then when they go back to their social democratic or mainstream liberal conservative parties, then it is deactivated. I don't, I don't think that is, that is the case. I think the shift is simply that the, the desire for and stability and, mm -hmm. and all that is normally served very well by the mainstream parties and only mm -hmm. at the point when they stop doing this or they appear to be not serving this desire well enough, for example, when they adopt sort of, uh, when they become culturally liberal, like mm -hmm. sex and all, all, all this stuff, then the confusion sets in and then the, the authoritarian 
annexation shifts maybe mm -hmm. to right-wing parties, which in systems like in this country or in, in the U.S., where you have yeah. stable two-party systems, it's usually just periodical, and it, which is what we are having now, it, it just shifts back easily. But that doesn't mean it is kind of switched on and off. It is just it, uh, the, the, the sort of is cathexed onto something else uh, rather than where it normally is. Yeah, I mean it's not yeah, it's not it's not switched yeah, it's not switched on on and off per se, but um, again it's you know it's activated in a more general sense by um, what people see and hear going on around. So I mean when but you have it doesn't actually change. That is a constant, just it is translated in, in party political terms differently because sure. constellations shift. Well, sure, so yeah, right. I mean, the, it, the, the whole point of, the, of having this socio-psychological terminology like authoritarianism is exactly that it does not exactly translate into party political terms. That, that is why it was invented. So you have to, um, maybe it helps thinking of the context in which the concept was developed, which was not in the 50s, it was in the late 20s. So in the, in the Frankfurt School context, this, the, the concept of authoritarianism was developed in the late 20s and in the 30s. And the, and the question that they were trying to address was not so much why do people support radical right-wing parties, that was pretty obvious because they were telling you why they would do that, so that, that was easy. The question was rather why was the labor movement or the, the, the people organized in the labor movement or workers in general, why did they fail to oppose them? So that, that was the actually the question. So the question of the authoritarian character was much more question of the mentality or the character structure of the communists, for example. Mm -hmm. So the, the, and that, that was the, the, the important question, because in the sort of uh, more traditional Marxist perspective, there was an expectation that the Communist Party and the Social Democratic Party, which were huge, they would stop fascism, uh, which they didn't mm -hmm. do. So, and that was the actual question. And the answer to that question was basically it was an inner left-wing or even inner communist uh, problematic. Why is it that, for example, the Communist Party in its Stalinized form at least was kind of training people into these authoritarian behavior patterns that would then uh, subsequently also make them sort of compatible with fascism, or at least would not prompt them to resist fascism. So that was the actual problematic out of which the concept was developed. And that is, this is quite deliberately across uh, political, party political terms. That, that was exactly the point. So why is there no resistance to fascism? That was the real question. Okay. Well, I have nothing to say about the 1920s and 30s, so... Oh, well, <laughs> Sorry, I mean... Comes from. But what okay. is the immigration I mean, thing being the mediator that is that, that with
rising immigration and media coverage, that mm -hmm. that is flagging it, and that's what's activating it. So it's not, it's, it's, yes, you might have the same party constellation, but if the media is flagging the immigration issue, then that will be doing the activating. It's not necessarily the party. It's, it's, oh, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, in, in the end, it's probably both, right? I mean, because you, you do have... I mean, the media can independently, or you know, certain media outlets can certainly independently go out and say, hey, there's lots of immigrants and they're bringing horrible customs and crime and other things that are scary to our society and causing it to break down. We're no longer the society we think we, we were, right? Uh, and of course, then political parties or you know, independent politicians or whoever can, can say the same thing. Um, now again, you'll probably, I mean, this all has to be based in some sort of underlying reality. I mean, right, if you, if you can sort of imagine a case where there's basically no immigration to a society, and then some, you know, media elites and party elites go out and say, hey, you know, there's this huge threat of immigration. Um, it's probably not going to resonate very well with people because people are going to look around and say, what are you talking about? Um, but, you know, when there is that reality, uh, and people might have already kind of noticed to them their own. I mean, they might have noticed in their neighborhood or whatever that um, there's, you know, more and more society is, is changing in its, in its, uh, in its makeup. And then, um, and then, you know, media and party elites come out and say, hey, this is happening because our current government, our current elites, the European Union, all these things are allowing this to happen. And, you know, this is really a big threat to our society because they're coming in and they're doing all these things, you know, then suddenly, yeah, that's, I mean, that, that resonates with you. And then they, they offer you a, right, they offer you a, you know, a, a solution. I mean, go vote for us and we'll, we'll fix this thing that you consider to be a problem, that you consider to, to be a threat to society. I think what, what is important, if, if you look at this country, for example, the shift in discussions or attitudes towards immigration, so it seems that, say, in the 50s or 60s, there was probably less popular anger about immigration, but the reason for that is that the immigration that was there could easily slot into a totally segregated and mm -hmm. stable society. Mm -hmm. So there was, uh, so the, 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 there's a reason that at one point in, in history, Immigration is basically shrugged off because mm -hmm. it doesn't affect the, the, the stability of the order. Yeah. Whereas in, in the present, immigration has a different effect because the mm -hmm. order is liberalized culturally to such an extent that immigration does have effects that are probably different from the effects it had in the 50s and 60s. So mm -hmm. uh, again, it is not the that there is suddenly Determinism is either there or not there. It's simply um, it is happy in the first instance. Sure. It doesn't have a problem with immigration because immigration in, in the 50s and 60s is not a threat to order. Because it is right. it just slots into a almost apartheid sort of system, which mm -hmm. it doesn't do now, and that is the problem. So you have to react if you are not fertile. Yeah, no, no I, I mean, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... Yeah, no, I mean, in a sense, that's what I'm saying, I think. So, yeah, I mean, you... 
you know, and now, you know, again, I mean, how much of that is because, right, the sort of the social structure of how authority or immigration is sort of built into society or accommodated? I mean, uh, how much of it is just because also, also sort of a numbers phenomenon? I mean, you can have immigration increasing from zero to two, you know, or kind of foreign-born population increasing from zero to two percent, let's say. Um, that may not be threatening to people, but when it's increasing from... 10 to 12 percent or something, it becomes more, more threatening. I mean, also, or, I mean, so, um, or you're right, I mean, also, again, kind of changing values, context, and, and so on, in which, which all of this is occurring. Um, so, you know, I mean, again, when I, you know, when I say, I mean, of course, we can't make this all monocausal. I mean, all these things, you know, this isn't, doesn't all happen in a vacuum. I mean, debates about Islam and multiculturalism and so on in Western societies are occurring in a context in which there's both immigration from Muslim-majority countries and as well as one in which there's the phenomenon of, of terrorism and radicalization and, and things like that, which gets talked about in the, in the media um, as, as being threats. Um, so immigration from the Muslim world would not have been threatening the people in the same way 50 years ago, per se, as it is seen as being, or, you know, described and, and thus seen as being threatening now um, because of those, that kind of, that shifting context, I think. Well, I think um, Eric's done a fantastic job of responding to your very good question. Um, and I just want to uh, help you join me in giving him a round of applause. Thank you. Thanks very much for uh, coming. Uh -huh. Yeah, I hope your phone oh, yeah. kind of picked up when I <laughs> walk away from the... Oh yeah, we're still going here. <laughs>